Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do, too. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The campaign to divest from fossil fuel stocks is gathering pace. Fifteen or sixteen big cities have already divested. Seattle, San Francisco, Portland. Big religious denominations. The United Church of Christ heard more directly from the Almighty, and they said it's not okay to be paying our pastors by investing in companies that are running Genesis in reverse. A conversation with Bill McKibben, also searching the sky for the origins of life. The first chemical reaction that takes place in the universe is actually just the formation of molecular hydrogen. Once you get these clouds, they'll become thick enough that they'll help shield the contents to form more rare molecules. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. First fire, then flood. There were record fires last year in Colorado, and then the record heat at the beginning of this month suddenly broke into a monster monsoon and flooded parts of 17 counties. The torrents killed at least six people and destroyed or damaged 19,000 homes. The National Weather Service called this latest extreme weather event biblical, but to put it in a more scientific context, we called up Matt Kelch. He's a hydrometeorologist at UCAR, the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, based in Boulder. We demolished the old records. Since European descent people moved here and set up rain gauges, we have never seen anything like this. We had about 14 and a half inches of rain in three days. The average annual is 20.69. So that's more than two-thirds of the average annual in um, three days. And over the entire week, we had 17.2 inches of rain. And the previous wettest year we ever had here had 29.93 inches of precipitation. And we are up to 30.14 now with three and a half months left in the year. Now, in 2012, we were reporting on the drought out west and some of the most destructive wildfires in Colorado history. Now, I understand that the areas that experienced fires that year are more susceptible to landslides and perhaps flooding this year. Uh, Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, wildfire in the West definitely enhances the potential for flash flooding. And the reason for that is when it rains, A lot of the water is first captured by the canopy of a healthy forest, so it wets the forest, and then it drips to the ground below, and there's forest litter, pine needles and decaying leaves, and they act like a sponge that absorb the water and slow down how it goes into the ground. When you've had a fire, you remove the tree canopy, and you also burn away all that forest litter that's on the ground, so the water that falls directly on the ground, if it's raining very hard, which it was in this storm, it can absorb that quickly and starts running off very quickly to the nearest stream channel. And along with that water running off the surface, it's carrying all this sediment and debris and sometimes boulders because the land surface is less stable once the trees have been destroyed by fire. So fires definitely increase the risk of flash floods. Now, what about these extremes in drought and flooding? and uh, what we might expect from a changing climate. This flood we just experienced does have a connection with climate change in that the odds of this kind of event seem to be increasing as the climate changes. It's not that they were never possible before, 
but now they're more possible than they used to be. Now, as I understand it, the first week in September was about the warmest on record for Colorado. What might this warm weather have had to do with these uh, intense rainstorms? Well, the heat wave, the record heat wave we were having the first week in September probably did have a direct correlation with what was to follow. In the western and southwestern United States in particular, there's something some of your listeners may have heard of called the southwest monsoon. But what happens is in the mid to late summer, typically in July and August, as the surfaces heat up, you have a big heat wave, warm air starts to rise. It creates like a thermal situation where it's rising. And then tropical air from the Pacific and the Gulf of Mexico can sometimes surge in and cause the setup for for some of the intense rains we see. That's referred to as the Southwest monsoon. But a lot of the biggest floods in the Southwest, including Colorado, have been associated with the Southwest monsoon, typically in the months of July and August. So this heat wave we had in September preceded a very exceptional surge of that monsoon moisture from the tropical Pacific and the Gulf of Mexico. The amounts of rain we have would not have been possible without that exceptional amount of atmospheric moisture. Now, of course, humans do change uh, our environment in ways other than the climate. Uh, I'm thinking of the built environment, parking lots, roads, and all that. How did things like impermeable surfaces affect this flood? That's a really important thing because when we develop an area, we tend to remove the forest and some of the natural vegetation, which act as a natural buffer to the rain when you do get a flood. And a lot of times those natural surfaces are replaced with things like buildings and shopping malls and parking lots. And yes, as you indicate, when it rains hard on a parking lot or a building, the water doesn't go into the ground. All of it just immediately funnels off to the nearest stream or low spot. So that also played a role in what we had here, especially in the urban environments and places like Boulder and Aurora, the suburb of Denver, where you had all this urban flooding, just this rapid runoff across the urban environments into the nearest streams that also enhanced the flooding that occurred. I've heard that some homes are isolated now in the wake of of this storm, roads washed out. To what extent do you think this event is going to change people's behavior or opinions about where it's appropriate to live? It's not the first time this has happened. Colorado, in July 31st, 1976, the Big Thompson River Canyon suffered a a devastating flood, much more localized than we saw here, but just as severe. 144 people died. That same canyon, by the way, was hit in this flood and also suffered major devastation again. There was a sense back then that this was a hundred or a thousand year flood. So I think there is this perception that, well, that's never going to happen again. So I don't know the answer to your question, but I'd be curious to see if now that we've had another one of these big floods only 37 years later, if the perception of risk is going to be a little greater. Now, what area were you in when it flooded? Uh, Tell me about your own experience. Well, I live in a neighborhood that wasn't hit too hard. I did have some flooding in my garage, and it's a mess. But given that I work in hydrology and meteorology, when I bought my house 23 years ago, (laughs) I was aware of where the floodplains were. There are some roads in Boulder, actually very close to where I live, just one neighborhood over, where the roads themselves are the designated 100-year floodplain. They're very steeply sloped roads from west to east. And it's something that you could go to the city's website and see that on the, the website. But most people that live in that area, I'm guessing, didn't know that. I don't think real estate agents tell you that when they're selling a house. And I'm just guessing a lot of people were totally surprised by the severity of what hit them, even though 
It's exactly what the 100-year floodplain map showed was going to happen. Matt Kelch is a hydrometeorologist at UCAR, the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, based in Boulder, Colorado. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Well, thank you. As the water recedes, authorities are scrambling to assess the extent of the damage. Weld County, northeast of Boulder, is the state's leading agricultural producer and also its second largest producer of gas and oil. Aerial photos of the area show several drilling platforms and oil tanks toppled or washed away in the flood. Todd Hartman is with the Colorado Department of Natural Resources. There are about 20,000 active oil and gas wells in Weld County. Now, that's not to say that that many wells have been impacted by this event, but surely, you know, I think it's safe to say that we've had hundreds of sites probably affected one way or the other. So what types of contaminants are in the area that could potentially find their way into the environment as a result of, of this flood? You know, to answer that question broadly, there are a number of municipal sewage treatment plants that have already been affected. There are uh, enormous agricultural activities, so you have anything from uh, pesticides, uh, herbicides, and the sort of large diesel storage tanks that you might see on a lot of farms. And of course, as you point out, you have a great deal of oil and gas development. More than anything, you have tanks at a wellhead that capture the oil that comes up from the ground, and those tanks store the oil. It's crude oil. A lot of folks have expressed concern um, about, specifically about fracturing chemicals, chemicals used in the hydraulic fracturing process. The number of, of sites that where there may have actually been fracking going on with this flood occurred is anywhere from few to perhaps you know zero. Uh, I think that's still being you know sorted out. So I guess my major point here is a, uh, that's not to downplay the issue at all because we do have crude oil stored in tanks at many of these sites, and, and you know clearly you don't want that escaping into the environment. Yes, uh, there are pictures uh, that one can see of the oil tanks uh, toppled over, the drilling platforms destroyed. How large a concern do you have there that the oil spells could turn out to be a widespread uh, problem? And, and, and how resistant are these wells to flooding situations? Uh, you know, generally speaking, those are double-walled tanks, and, and they're pretty robust, but that's certainly not to suggest that they would be immune to problems here. We do have concerns about the, the scenes you've described, and we're out there now trying to get a sense of whether this is a widespread problem. We don't quite know enough yet to say with any certainty that this is either a very, a very a small impact or a very large impact. How concerned uh, are you that uh, contaminants might be finding their way into uh, groundwater, which uh, could potentially, of course, become a public health problem? We're absolutely concerned. I'm no hydrologist, and I'm not a scientist, and so I hesitate to make this point, but I would say that since you specifically asked about groundwater, you know, initially, if you did have a problem, this is going to be carried in surface waters, and surface waters would be the most immediate concern. I think over time, over a longer period, here's the waters recede, and we have a better sense of what occurred. You know, we will be looking at groundwater impacts and trying to determine, you know, what the impacts on groundwater are, but I think our, our immediate concern here is the more obvious and visible, knowable impacts. Uh, what about the question of uh, sediment uh, contamination uh, in the weeks, months, the years ahead? Um, 
is a lot of agriculture there in, in Colorado. How might farmers, ranchers be uh, affected, uh, be concerned about pollution on their land following this great flood? Well, um, I think they should be uh, very vigilant about that. We are taking it seriously. We, like the farmers and other landowners, will want to know about that. We will be looking for it ourselves because it's in nobody's interest to have sediments, uh, soil contamination or groundwater contamination. We all um, benefit from the agriculture that takes place in, in that region. And in fact, a lot of that food is consumed here in the Denver metro area. So there's a high level of awareness there. I'm wondering if in the future the experience of this flood might affect how you handle uh, permitting for oil and gas wells. Well, I think any time something out of the ordinary like this happens, it's an opportunity to um, ask ourselves, can we do better? Is there a, a regulatory approach that needs to be reviewed here? You know, by the same token, do you have to balance that with the idea that this is, uh, at least in this point in our state's history, an extremely unusual event? And do you build regulations around an event this unusual, or is there some, some middle ground you reach? But doubtless, we will be, you know, examining closely what occurred here, what the impacts were, and whether there are things that we can do in our regulatory capacity to address this were it to occur in the future and reduce those impacts. But it's awfully early for us to be thinking much about that when we still don't fully understand what, um, what the impacts were. Well, good luck sort of seems lame compared to what you're up against. <laughs> I appreciate the, uh, the sentiment regardless, and uh, it's, it's uh, good to, uh, to speak about it with you. Todd Hartman is the spokesman for the Colorado Department of Natural Resources. Thanks so much, Todd. Thank you very much. Coming up, how the food we throw away could power our homes for the future. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Just ahead, exploring very big concepts by contemplating the night sky. But first, this note on emerging science from Ponce Rutch. For decades, farmers have used noxious pesticides to kill insects that eat crops. But environmentalists complain that these pesticides run off from farms, contaminating the soil, lakes, and streams. This pest control could change, though. Yunsong Park, a professor of entomology at Kansas State University, has found a way to manipulate insects' sexual activity. Park worked with colleagues in Korea and Slovakia to identify a signaling chemical called metallicin, a cluster of amino acids that tells the brain to commence mating behavior. He knocked out metallicin in three different kinds of insects, fruit flies, silkworm moths, and a species of beetle. Park reports that when natalicin isn't present, the insects' mating rituals didn't quite work. The beetles lacking natalicin only managed to produce a quarter of their typical offspring, and the fruit flies struggled in their mating rituals. The male sang his typical mating song to an appealing female, but the sound came out much quieter than usual, and the female was too busy grooming herself to notice him. These findings suggest an environmentally safe technique to manage pests birth control. But Park has yet to find a way to target a single species or even small groups of species. He says this method must be pursued cautiously to limit the impacts just to pests. After all, 
there are plenty of pollinators and scavengers that he wouldn't want to interrupt. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Ponzi Rutch. As part of its renewable energy program, Massachusetts will ban large institutions from sending food waste to the dump. Starting next July, major facilities must either compost their scraps or send them to an anaerobic digester. Paul Salou is the CEO of Harvest Power, a company that plans to run anaerobic digesters to convert thousands of tons of food waste into energy in Massachusetts. Salou stopped by our studios to explain how he thinks food waste bans will help us take full advantage of the renewable energy source on our plates. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Paul, tell us about this food waste ban in Massachusetts. Just how would this work? Well, it's really straightforward. If you are a commercial generator of food waste, say a large restaurant, an institution, uh, a university, a grocery store, then basically the legislation is around incenting and requiring you to put that to a higher and better use versus sending it to a landfill or sending it to an incinerator, which is where about 97% of the food waste is being disposed of right now in Massachusetts and, for that matter, the United States. It's a rulemaking rather than legislation? Yeah, it's rulemaking because you need to build out the infrastructure, and it's a bit of a chicken and egg issue, right? You need to have the feedstock to build out the facilities such as anaerobic digestion and composting. And then you also need this infrastructure to be built so that you have a place to take the food waste that's being generated. So I think it's a very pragmatic and practical way to incent companies and incent generators to basically do the right thing for the environment. So how much food waste is there in Massachusetts where you operate your company? Uh, DEP says about a million tons a year. And so if you look at it as a country, you multiply that by about 40. And that's how much we have as a country, about 40 million tons. So enormous amounts of material. And basically, it's a, it's a great feedstock for anaerobic digestion and or composting. And it is such a better use of the material than sending it to a landfill or an incinerator, where you end up losing the value inherent in this material. Well, describe the process for us. How do you turn food waste into energy that we can use? Well, the way we do it is that we borrow from nature, and scientists call this biomimicry. And so a great example of a natural living anaerobic digester is a ruminant, a cow, a sheep, or a goat. They are basically operating anaerobic digesters in their gut, and that's why they can eat things such as grass and hay that we can't eat. And literally, we are mimicking the biological processes that go on in the stomach of a ruminant with one important difference. And that is? We capture the biogas. We basically, uh, it does not go into the atmosphere. It is captured, and biogas is about 65 to 70% methane, and methane is natural gas. So we capture it and use that as a source of renewable energy, which is a very obviously important part of our process. So how do you deliver the energy from this biogas to, to customers? Let someone use it to turn on their lights? Well, that's a great question. We can put it into an on-site engine genset called a combined heat and power made by companies like Caterpillar and General Electric. And we basically can substitute, say, natural gas or diesel fuel or even gasoline, use biogas as the fuel, run this, that powers an electric genset, and that's hooked right up to the grid. 
And then we end enter into a power purchase agreement with the utility, and they buy the electricity that we're generating from our facility on a 24-7 basis. The other flexible uses for biogas is that it's about 65% methane, the balance is CO2. You can strip off the CO2, enrich the biogas now to a, what we call biomethane, which is an identical product to natural gas. Once you've done that, you can put it into the natural gas grid. You can also compress it and make what we call bio-CNG, or bio-compressed natural gas, which is a transportation fuel. So you've got a fuel that can be used for electricity, can be used for anything that natural gas is used for, and can also be used as a transportation fuel, and that also is available on a 24 by 7 basis, because once again, we've captured the energy in the plant material. So unlike my friends in the wind and solar business that are dependent upon the wind blowing or the sun shining, we basically are what we call baseload power, so we're available 24 7. You do depend on people eating regularly, though. <laughs> Absolutely, and we're, we're quite confident that that, will, that practice will continue. So how much power can you generate with this? Well, if you figure roughly uh, three to four tons of basically of our input, food waste, things that we would ordinarily throw into a landfill, that will generate enough electricity to power an average home for one month. So how soon will we be seeing one of these plants uh, in Massachusetts? Well, we have anaerobic digesters right now in Massachusetts, facilities like Deer Island, and as part of the wastewater treatment infrastructure that uh, many communities have in Massachusetts. So anaerobic digestion is not a new technology. In fact, it's quite common in the wastewater treatment field. What is new about what Harvest is proposing is the application of that technology to new organic waste streams, such as food waste, such as leaves, grass, and brush. That is what's new. I think Massachusetts will be at the forefront of this new type of renewable en uh, energy. How about Harvest Power in, in particular? How soon for you? Well, we're quite active. So, I mean, we hope uh, very soon there's significant environmental regulations and permitting. These facilities are not uncomplicated to develop, and they take time. So based on going through all the hurdles, we would hope to have an operating facility within a few years. You know, this sounds, well, somebody listening to us might say, this sounds too good to be true. Um, what's the catch here? Well, let's look at a country that is the fourth largest economy in the world, Germany. The largest form of renewable energy in Germany is from organic materials, principally through anaerobic digestion. We have a large renewable energy industry also using organic materials. But what we have elected to do in this country is to grow a corn plant and take the corn kernels off that plant and turn it into ethanol. That is not the sustainable thing we should be doing. Now, in Germany, they'll take the cob, the kernels, the entire plant. And because we break down cellulose and hemicellulose, starches and sugars in an anaerobic digester, you get about three to four times the energy per acre putting that corn plant through an anaerobic digester. The Germans looked at this from a science base, and they did policy accordingly. We did it on a politic-based analysis that our elected representative decided to do something for the corn growers. So I think we eventually will do the right thing, but I take great excitement seeing what a country like Germany has done, where they have been building close to 1,000 anaerobic digesters per year and have a much larger industry around anaerobic digestion in Germany, and they're one-fourth the size of the U.S. economy. 
Paul Salou is the CEO of Harvest Power, Massachusetts-based company that makes anaerobic digesters. Thanks for coming by, Paul. Thank you. The key to the most profound realities of our existence may not be found on our world at all. It's still a subject for speculation and conjecture, but the origin of life on Earth may well be unearthly, and the whole unbounded diversity of existence may have seeds far, far away. At least that's a possibility that Ari Daniel found himself considering as he contemplated what exactly is to be found in distant clouds across the universe. His story is part of a series called Small Matters, where he sweats the small stuff, in this case, seeking the world in a handful of stardust. If someone were to offer to meet me in a dark, deserted parking lot in the middle of the night, I'd probably think twice. But I didn't even bat an eye when Jacob Loss suggested it to me, because that was the whole point of our rendezvous. The darker, the better. And that's because Loss is a stargazer. Just the expanse of the universe is just amazing, almost incomprehensible to what we're used to on our day-to-day lives. And so when I look up, I just take it all in. This parking lot is on the campus of Emory University in Atlanta, where Loss is a graduate student in astrochemistry. It's a good night. Beautiful here. Loss studies the molecules of outer space and how those molecules may have shaped our galaxy and life itself. But first things first, we need to get our eyes on the sky. Loss pops open the trunk to his Jeep to reveal his personal treasure. I've had this telescope, I think since I was about 10 now. You know, I convinced my dad into getting it for me. This isn't your average handheld telescope. The whole setup weighs a good 70 pounds. It takes Loss 15 minutes to assemble it in the cold night air. First come a hefty tripod and mounting platform, which secure the actual telescope, a black cylinder the size of a small trash can. Finally, Loss screws a couple counterweights into position. All right, so everything's set up. Loss spins the telescope effortlessly, the counterweights balancing every turn. I feel like you're playing an instrument. (laughs) An instrument in the dark. To get things started, he swivels the telescope towards the half moon. Even from a couple feet away, I can see moonlight streaming out of the eyepiece. Yeah, do you want to have a look? I'd love to. Wow, it's beautiful. Once you have a couple looks at one of these things, it's easy to fall in love with the astronomy. But we're not out here tonight to look at the moon, as pretty as it is. We're after something much less obvious. Loss ratchets up the magnification and swings the telescope towards the bottom of Orion. He scans the constellation slowly until he finds a patch of soft blue mist, something called the Great Orion Nebula. And within this nebula, it looks like dark holes have been punched out of the mist. These chunks of darkness are what we're looking for, interstellar clouds, dense accumulations of gas and dust that sit between stars. The reason that Loss studies these clouds, usually with much more powerful telescopes, is because they're the site of some pretty remarkable chemistry. The first chemical reaction that takes place in the universe is actually just the formation of molecular hydrogen. That is hydrogen gas, or the stuff that exploded so disastrously on the Hindenburg. And hydrogen gas first gets formed inside these interstellar clouds. And so once you get these clouds that start to form more molecular hydrogen, they'll become thick enough that they'll help shield 
the contents to form more rare molecules. And so shielding from what? Cosmic rays. So molecules have trouble forming in the universe because they're being bombarded by this stuff? Yeah, they're constantly being bombarded by uh, particles or photons that otherwise would just rip them apart. The interstellar clouds, puffed up with hydrogen gas, provide a kind of protective blanket for other molecules to form and remain intact. You can start to get CO or... Carbon monoxide. Yeah, carbon monoxide. Then you start to see uh, methanol. The simplest alcohol there is. Gradually, these interstellar clouds get warmer and build up an inventory of molecules. And it's thought that this process may have seeded the early galaxies over 13 billion years ago with a set of chemical building blocks that helped to form meteors and asteroids and planets, and even, perhaps, molecules tied to the origin of life. Well, there's another molecule called glycolaldehyde that is almost a sugar. That almost sugar is made inside interstellar clouds too, and it's been shown to give rise to the more complex sugars we see in living organisms today. Now, this next bit is somewhat speculative, but hear me out. There's some debate as to whether these clouds are the birthplace of comets. We just don't have enough information to be sure. But if it's true, then comets could act as a kind of delivery vehicle for these molecules to get out of the interstellar clouds and end up on planets like Earth. And since comets are full of ice, we may have interstellar clouds to thank for the watery, life-filled world we see around us. And that's what captures Loss's imagination. That what goes on right in front of us can also occur everywhere else in the universe that we look at. It's exciting to me to be able to make these connections between these two extremes. All you need, says Jacob Loss, is a big telescope to look deep into outer space and an even bigger amount of ambition right here on Earth. For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel. Our series, Small Matters, is produced by the Center for Chemical Evolution with support from the National Science Foundation and NASA. Oil, honey, and revolution. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's just past the autumnal equinox, and now the days are shorter than the nights, and the infallible signs of approaching winter are all around us. Still, this season does offer the joys of fall, and here in the north, the harvest, the turning leaves, and the departing birds. Here's Mary McCann with our bird note. In September, Arctic terns fly south over the ocean, from Alaska all the way to Antarctica. Also in September... The last rufous hummingbirds depart their breeding range in the west, following floral highways of mountain wildflowers south to Mexico. 
Ruby-crowned kinglets are leaving the northern evergreen forests where they nest on their way to milder climates. Each of these birds is migrating, but on a very different course. All have the same adaptive goal, making the most of food and breeding opportunities that change with the seasons. Arctic terns follow one of the longest annual migrations, traveling as much as 44,000 miles each year. Arctic tundra provides their ideal nesting site in summer. The Antarctic, the ideal feeding grounds in our winter. Rufus hummingbirds are medium-range migrants, traversing about 5,000 miles a year between temperate and tropical nectar sources. Some ruby-crowned kinglets are altitudinal migrants, especially in the West. They may remain close to the same latitude all year, but spend the cold months in the relative warmth of the lowlands, dining on insects and their eggs. In summer, you'll need to ascend thousands of feet into the western mountain ranges to hear the kinglet's exuberant song. I'm Mary McCann. To find some photos, migrate over to our website, LOE.org. In early 2011, the Keystone XL Pipeline project to bring tar sands crude from Canada to refineries on the U.S. Gulf Coast seemed almost certain to be approved by the State Department and the White House. Now that approval's no longer quite such a slam dunk, and part of what's changed the equation are protests organized by 350.org. In all, more than a thousand people opposed to the project were arrested on the steps of the White House in the fall of 2011, setting off a fierce national debate on climate change. Among those arrested was Bill McKibben, a co-founder of 350.org. His new book, Oil and Honey, is part memoir of the life of a climate activist and part meditation on beekeeping in Vermont. Bill, welcome back to Living on Earth. Steve, as always, it's awfully good to be with you. So, Oil and Honey, kind of a biblical reference. What's this book all about? Well, I mean, I suppose it's a title that works in a lot of ways. It either calls up those biblical um, ideas of milk and honey or the idea of oil and water not mixing or whatever. But it's about the global and the local. Oil stands for the global problem into which we've fallen, the greatest problem humans have ever faced. The honey and the story about the beekeeper in Vermont that underlies that half of the book reminds us that it's possible to imagine a different world, and that that world is the one that we need to head toward. The reason that we have to head off the climate crisis is so that we can produce the kind of planet that works for people and works for the rest of creation, too. This book is a delight to read, and it's, well, much more personal than your other books, Uh, although you did write about having just one child, having only one. This is really a memoir about your personal transformation uh, from Bill McKibben, the environmental writer, to Bill McKibben, the rabble-rousing, getting-arrested activist. At what point did you decide that being a commentator about climate issues just wasn't going to cut it anymore? You know, I wrote the first book about global warming 25 years ago now, The End of Nature. And at the time, I think I and probably most people thought this is a 
argument about reason and science and that as that science becomes clear to everybody, well, then change will follow, uh, that our leaders will do what's necessary. And for year after year, scientists trotted up to Capitol Hill and explained that the worst thing that ever happened was happening. And economists came right behind him and said, it's pretty clear what we need to do. We put a price on carbon to reflect the damage it does in the atmosphere. We internalize the externalities. We won the scientific and economic arguments powerfully. Uh, we just weren't winning any action. We were losing the war. And at a certain point, I think, a bunch of us realized this isn't all about reason. It's mostly about the incredible power of the fossil fuel industry. They're the richest industry on earth. I mean, Exxon made more money the last four years than any company in the history of money, okay? And that if we were going to take them on, it wasn't enough to just win the scientific argument to write some more books did not seem like it was going to substantially contribute to this. We needed to build a movement that could find a different currency than money to work in, the currencies of movement, you know, passion, spirit, creativity. Sometimes we'd need to spend our bodies. One of the gifts of your book, Bill, is that you take us inside this massive demonstration in uh, 2011 really several days of demonstration action in Washington where you and a number of prominent people get arrested, including uh, Gus Speth, who used to run the Presidential Council on Environmental Quality, a guy with a White House pass, gets arrested in front of the White House. Tell us how that all came about. Well, we'd sent out a letter, Gus and myself and Wendell Berry and some others, asking people to come to Washington and get arrested at the start of this protest over the Keystone Pipeline. And we did not know if anyone would show up, but a lot of people showed up. Even on the first day of this planned two-week thing, there were about 100 people there to get arrested. So the police decided they'd try to deter us by treating us somewhat more harshly than they normally do, protesters. So the first wave of us got to spend three days in central cell block in D.C., which is about as much fun as it sounds like it would be. But the great pleasure was having Gus in the next cell, um, through the bars, and we could talk. In fact, he shouted out a half-hour synopsis of his new book, America the Possible, to the whole uh, uh, cell block, all the other protesters who were there. We had a kind of, you know, jailhouse school, you know. I remember at one point, they weren't letting us, ask, us out to see lawyers or anything, but Gus Speth's son was a big, heavy-duty corporate lawyer in D.C., and he'd been papering the jailhouse with writs, I think, and things. And they finally let Gus out to see his son for a few minutes. And we knew that was our chance to send a message to the press, so we tried to think what Gus could say. And he just wrote out this one sentence. You're right. He'd been head of the Council on Environmental Quality, head of the U.N. Development Program. He pretty much as heavy a hitter as there's ever been. And the one sentence he wrote was... Um, I've held a lot of important positions in this town, but none of them seem as important as the one I'm in right now, which I thought was a pretty powerful way to explain why movements really are what underwrites all the other environmental policy and investigation and things that we engage in. So three nights in jail, and not just any jail, but, you know, D.C., downtown, a uh, pretty nasty place. I mean, one has to think it's D.C. that the White House would have had some influence over this decision. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, frankly, I kind of doubt it. I bet they weren't paying that much attention, at least at the beginning. But they're paying attention now. Keystone's become the iconic environmental fight of our time. And sometime this year or next, the president's going to have to make the call. 
And when he does, I mean, it'll be an interesting moment. If he does the right thing and blocks it, it'll be the first time that any world leader has ever said no to a big project on the grounds that it would be bad for the climate. If he says yes, you know, I fear that we'll have no choice but to think of him as, at least on this issue, big talk, small action. Uh, Bill, you could have easily chosen just to write a memoir exclusively about your work with 350.org, but it's called Oil and Honey, and you spend an awful lot of time writing about uh, your friend who's, who's running an apiary, uh, a bee business there in the Champlain Valley of Vermont. Why was it important to tell us about uh, you and your friend's relationship with honey? Well, first of all, this guy is a great character, Kirk Webster, first chemical-free commercial apiarist in the country, thrived his hives thriving despite the horrible things that are happening to honeybees, as you know, across this planet. And so I wanted to tell his story. But the more that I sort of thought about it, the more it was clear to me that this was the other half of the story that needed telling. We need to do two things. We need to make our local places work again, to be able to be more self-reliant, to not depend on you know, supply lines that stretch out forever into the world, but relocalize much of our lives. There's no way to break the fossil fuel habit without doing some of that. And that's why it's beautiful to watch these things happen. And I love to describe the time with the bees and things. By the same token, if that's all we do, then it won't work. Uh, There we were in Vermont in 2011 in beautiful bucolic Vermont when Hurricane Irene came up the East Coast and passed over record warm waters off New York and New Jersey and soaked up immense amounts of rainfall and shattered every record that we had in Vermont for how much rain and it just washed away not just roads and bridges, it washed away a lot of the beautiful organic farms. We got to do both these things, local, global, home and away. One of the things that you note about bees is their decision making. You say this is a form of consensus. This fascinating book about a year old by a Cornell entomologist named Tom Seeley. And his question was, how do bees, you know, bees swarm in the spring. If they get too many in a hive, half the hive will go off and find a new home. And you've seen them sometimes, big colonies of bees hanging from a light post or a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, as that's, they're waiting for 48 hours maybe to figure out where their new home will be. It's not that the queen goes and makes a decision. Uh, just the opposite. She's a bystander. When that swarm emerges... Hundreds of scouts go off in every direction, and they find suitable-sized holes in trees or under eaves or things, and then they come back to the swarm, and they tell the story. They do it by dancing to sort of describe the place they found and where it is, and the, um, the ferocity of their dance indicates how good a place they think it is. So if they're really, you know, if it's like serious, like soul train, you know, getting down, <laughs> then a lot of other bees start paying attention. Some of them go off and look at that hive and they come back and if they agree they'll dance enthusiastically there'll be six or seven contenders at first and then more and more bees will go and stand in one corner as it were when you get to about 60 or 70 percent the whole thing just tips and everybody agrees and they fly off together so it's a lot like new england town meeting you know it's very direct democracy and as far as one can tell uncontaminated by i mean There's no bees like buying off other bees, you know, in order to uh, get things to go their way. 
So yes, a useful reminder of what a more direct form of democracy looks like. Okay, Bill, when you began 350.org, it seemed that you were really focused on the political process, going after politicians to make a change. When did you decide to just aim straight at the oil companies? Well, because we figured out that the politicians were not independent actors in this case. I mean, we've watched the Keystone thing. We can predict with unerring accuracy how politicians, how congressmen will vote. If you tell me how much money they took from the fossil fuel industry, I can tell you how they'll vote on virtually anything related to the energy industry. So we really began to understand that these guys were the problem. And it's why we'll play defense with things like Keystone, but why we now try to play offense as hard as we can, especially with this divestment campaign that's burgeoning around the country and, and very exciting to me. Let's talk about divestment. You've been out there fighting against Keystone, but now you've moved into this realm of asking folks to divest of their investments in fossil fuels. Focused, first of all, on institutions, on colleges, universities, churches, cities. We started about 10 months ago modeling ourselves really on the work that was done around apartheid in South Africa a generation ago. And it was Desmond Tutu who played such a role in that fight that recorded the seminal video for this. He just said, if you could see what drought and famine were doing to Africa through no fault of our own, you'd understand why we need you to take up these same tools again. So far, beginner's luck, we're, we're ahead of the pace of, say, the work on South Africa. 15 or 16 big cities have already divested. Seattle, San Francisco, Portland, Providence, Rhode Island. Six or seven colleges have already done so, most recently San Francisco State. Uh, this summer, big religious denominations. The Unitarians said they're going to spend a year in a process of discernment about whether to divest. The United Church of Christ uh, heard more directly from the Almighty and decided to uh, divest right away. They're our oldest, you know, denomination. They're sort of the ones that date back right to the pilgrims. And they said it's not okay to be paying our pastors by investing in companies that are running Genesis in reverse, you know. This is spreading around the world. Uh, the Uniting Church of Australia, the Episcopal Diocese of Auckland in New Zealand this week, colleges and universities in Europe, in many parts of the planet, people taking on this industry as, as forthrightly as they can. What's the logic of divestment? It's not that we're going to bankrupt Exxon, we're not, but we're going to politically bankrupt them, morally bankrupt them, make it hard, turn them into the rogue industry that they deserve to be. The math is pretty simple. If you go look at all the SEC filings and annual reports and things, the industry and the countries that kind of operate like fossil fuel companies have five times as much coal and gas and oil in their reserves as even the most conservative scientist thinks would be safe to burn. Five times what would take us past a two-degree rise in temperature. But they're going to burn it. That's what they've told the banks. That's what they've told their investors. They've found this coal and gas and oil. They plan to dig it up and sell it. In fact, they look for more every day. Exxon boasts about spending $100 million a day searching for more hydrocarbons, even though we have already melted the Arctic, you know. In fact, the minute we melted the Arctic, their first response was, let's go up there and drill for some more stuff. Um, but they don't burn it, though. We burn it. Well, that's right. But most of us, day by day, 
uh, we have some choice about how much we burn, and I trust that everybody who listens to Living on Earth has long since changed their light bulbs and changed their lifestyles to one degree or another. But there are limits to how much one can fully escape the fossil fuel world. You know, you might want to take the train, but if there is no train, it's hard to do. And the reason that there's no train is because the fossil fuel industry has made sure that they've protected their racket for a long time. They're the only industry on the planet that's allowed to pour out their waste for free. Nobody else ever, anywhere, gets to pollute for free. That's a privilege reserved for these guys. As long as they're able to hold on to that, the chances of the deep structural change that we need are, are hard to come by. So the subtitle of your book, Oil and Honey, is The Education of an Unlikely Activist. What do you think you've learned most on this trail? It's a good question. Um, I think I've learned most how many people there are who want to do something. The problem with taking action on climate change is that it seems too big, that the problem is just so huge that nothing any of us could do as individuals could matter. And in a way, that's true. I mean, I've got all the right light bulbs in my house and solar panels all over the roof, but I try not to confuse myself with the idea that that's how we're going to solve this problem. We're going to solve it if we come together as a movement, and I think people realize that more and more all the time. If the problem is structural, then the solution has to be a joint solution that changes the balance of power. So um, I suppose in some ways that makes us um, radical, but in other ways, just the opposite. All we're asking for is a planet that works the way that the planet worked for a very long time, for the 10,000 years that is the sum total of human history. You know, Asking for that kind of stability isn't radical. If anything, it's conservative. I think in the end, radicals work at oil companies. If you're willing to make your fortune by altering the chemical composition of the atmosphere, if you're willing to make your fortune by raising the temperature of the earth, then you're engaged in the most radical act that any human being's ever been engaged in. And it's time for us to check that radicalism. Bill McKibben is a writer, distinguished scholar at Middlebury College, and the progenitor of the organization 350.org. His new book is called Oil and Honey, the Education of an Unlikely Activist. Thanks for taking the time today, Bill. Pleasure as always, friend. And there's much more of this interview at our website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. And this week, we're happy to welcome a new intern, Andrew Keyes. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. 
Living on Earth is also supported by A Friend of the Nation, where you can read such environmental writers as Wen Stevenson, Bill McKibben, Mark Hertzgard, and others at thenation.com. This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.